Good morning again, everyone. Now we've got sound. Everything I said a moment ago, you've missed. Never mind. That was my mistake. Well, uh, let me just once again reiterate what a joy it is to be able to bring our service to you from the Wodonga and District Baptist Church. We're very constrained in what we can do in terms of music and and team all of those wonderful talents going to waste at the moment or at least not going to waste just um, not being utilized but it is good to still be able to do what we are doing we have uh, very few announcements to make today clearly we haven't got any neighborhood churches operating we've got no programs operating no play groups uh, there is a prayer meeting happening tomorrow night at seven the newsletter has those details if you want those details um, and you're most welcome to join in there we want to acknowledge too uh, through this past week that Marg Docking passed away. Marg of course was instrumental in leading and setting up Wise Choices for Life. Our church has supported that work as have a significant number of people uh, through uh, Australia and beyond and it was with great sadness that we acknowledge that uh, Marg has passed away and gone to be with the Lord and uh, just be mindful today of family who have been impacted in that space as um, as they grieve let's just take a moment to pray and then we'll start looking into our next uh, next in this little series of four sermons that i've put together um, during this time of covid particularly this most recent series of lockdowns a few weeks ago we spent some time just naming some of the grief that we experienced as we went into the sixth lockdown spent a little bit of time three weeks or so ago talking about when is enough enough is there a time where we say we're not going to submit to our government what does submitting to god and submitting to our leaders actually look like last week um, we spent some time thinking about what it means to lament and the fact that god laments too and how significant lament is today we're going to finish uh, with a topic i'll come to in a moment but let's take a moment to pray Gracious God, we want to thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you again that you are Lord in all of our circumstances and so still our hearts today as we come once again to reflect on what you are saying to us. For your spirit is a spirit who is active and speaks, has always spoken and longs to speak to us. Lord, you would long to conform us to be like you too and so even today as we think about some of these deep things, that uh, we might be open to what you would be saying, that you would shape us, that we might grow in Christ-likeness, that we might walk with obedience and faithfulness, that we might be light and love in our community and in our world. And so we give you thanks for all your goodness today again in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a story <coughs> that I was reading through the week of two old mates who were sitting in a pub sharing a drink late one night watching the news you know the multiple screens and one of them had um, the late news on it and the broadcast switched to the story of a man who was standing at the top of a 10-story building threatening to jump and one of the cobbers turned to the other and said I'll, I'll bet you 10 bucks that he doesn't jump and his mate said you're on and they shook hands on it and then moments later to their dismay uh, the unfortunate fellow jumped to a grisly end and so the first bloke reached into his wallet and pulled out his 10 bucks and he said here you go to his old friend and his old friend no 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 mate I can't look I just can't take take your money to be honest I saw him jump on the six o'clock news 
Oh yeah, so did I, said the first man, but I didn't think he'd do it again. You know, I was thinking, in light of that grisly story, of the number of occasions in life where, in the aftermath of what I've done, I've thought to myself, gosh, I'll never do that again. And sometimes we learn from those experiences, don't we? And sometimes, you know, maybe months or years later, hopefully not moments later, we find ourselves doing the same thing again. It's good to learn from past experience. Historians actually do tell us, unless we're prepared to learn from our mistakes of the past, we're destined to make them again. And I think there's some truth in that. And church historians would tell us that there is much that we can learn from the context of the early church. And so today, as we think about our context in the, in the midst of this uh, ongoing crisis that we face, my question is, what can we learn from ancient Christians? What can we learn from the ancient Christians in the face of pandemic? At the start of the coronavirus crisis, many pastors... Uh, and probably myself included, swivelled in our chairs towards our bookshelves and dusted off some of those, um, those uh, church history books that we've not touched since Bible college days and flicked through them to see some of the stories of the early centuries to understand what did the church do in the face of some of the crises they faced in the early uh, centuries when there was plague and pestilence. And it was a good strategy and I suspect that many, many pastors did that and it probably provided a foundation for an enormous amount of preaching and indeed some of the things that we've said here encouraging the church. The historians have been, on the whole, very generous towards the ancient Christians, drawing on the writings of some of their own and last week I mentioned Cyprian as one of those who, um, who wrote about the response of the Christians in those crises that they faced back in the third and the fifth and, and so on through the centuries uh, and in fact some of the historians were effervescent in their praise of what the Christians did very very uh, positive in terms of the fact that in some cases they stayed rather than running away they ministered to the sick and the needy they collected the bodies from the road and gave them proper burials uh, they actually built up some immunity because uh, some fell ill and were nursed back to health and so were able to build immunity and so were able to help others. And historians would say the church grew exponentially, particularly after the third century, because people were impressed by the caregiving that they saw. And as a consequence, one of the major themes that runs through preaching on this topic is you know we should look at that example and follow that example and we should uh, consider what it means to follow in the footsteps of Jesus just like they followed in the footsteps of Jesus caring for the sick looking out for the neighbor maintaining joy in the midst of crisis creating new bonds of relationship doing new things together in society and so on uh, all of those things the early church did and it set them apart and it would make a really nice sermon to do that it's kind of Christianity 101 walk in the footsteps of Jesus you can't go wrong preaching on something like that but as I was looking at it and, and perhaps because um, I get bored easily too uh, sometimes I was thinking there's something deeper going on in this space there's something else that was happening in those early years that we ought to take notice of 
Something that I think we have missed in our modern Western society, and although this might sound very morbid and disturbing to even think about, I want to suggest to you that like the early church in the context of the plague, we need to reacquaint ourselves with death. Now, some of you might think that is a profoundly stupid thing to say, reacquaint ourselves with what could be gained from reacquainting ourselves with death. You know, the scripture talks about we'll live, we'll die, we're, none of us are going to escape it, we all know it's going to happen. Uh, some of you might be offended that I'm even suggesting we talk about death having experienced that uh, in, in the community just recently. But let, let me just um, put this to you for a few moments and then consider uh, what I'm saying here. Because in ancient times, in fact in times not actually that many generations ago, death was a companion never that far from the day-to-day -day experience of people. Infant mortality was much higher than it is today. Infections and disease that we control with medication or with vaccines were uh, in some, in many cases, much more dangerous. Uh, the mortality rate was much higher. Life expectancy was way lower for various reasons. Uh, even the simple act of a family killing stock for food, you know, sacrificing, not sacrificing, that, well, that's biblical talk, killing uh, sheep for food or pigs for food or whatever it might have been was done in plain sight. People were kind of more acquainted with the cycle of life and death than we are here in the West because we've largely sanitised death, haven't we? We have kept it out of sight. We avoid talking about it. We actually subcontract the business to people we call undertakers or as they like to be called nowadays, funeral directors, much softer term. We don't plan for it. It's not part of our everyday experience by and large and so as the modern world has been reacquainted with the oldest travelling companion in human history, the fear of uh, unavoidable death through this time of coronavirus panic, we've been psychologically unprepared for it. And I genuinely believe that one of the reasons there's been such an anxiety and such fear in our community is because we've been confronted with something that we can't control. And it's frightened us, it's scared us. Psychologically, we've not been ready to deal with this. To put it rather crassly, we in the affluent West have enjoyed life that is so darn good and so jolly comfortable, we don't like, we don't need to think about end-of-life issues. We don't need to think of what's coming beyond the grave. And even in the church, if I was to reflect on this, and I think it would be true and self-critical to say this, we spend a lot of time preaching on the topic about how to live well, how to have uh, good relationships in our family, how to do good outreach, how to build networks with our neighbours, how to go well in life. But uh, I can't think of terribly many times, other than perhaps at funerals, where I've spoken on the topic of how to die well or how to prepare for death. And a sermon like that is not going to be a great hit, I don't suspect, on YouTube, unless you're into euthanasia and I'm not. Um, because it's not something we want to think about. And yet death is very much part of the life and, uh, and times of the Bible and the biblical authors don't shy away from this reality. In fact, Jesus, Paul, others who wrote the New Testament and others, of course, in the Old Testament were very, very well acquainted with the cycle of life 
and death and they weren't afraid of dealing with the reality of death and while they held firmly to the value of life they held very strong views on the importance of what came after life too. Paul for example always considered his life to be significant but it was always temporary and much less a significant experience than that which he anticipated when he was face to face with God. In Philippians chapter 3 verse 21 he says and this is just one of a number of examples for me Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain and I understand what Paul is saying there is while I'm in my life here on earth I'm going to live for Jesus I'll do everything I can to follow in his footsteps and be obedient to his call but I look forward to a greater time when I'll be with him face to face. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul wrote a, a, a number of answers through 1 Corinthians to questions that had been raised by the Corinthian church. And one of the questions that the church was raising was, what's going on with this resurrection business? Because they kind of expected Jesus to come back and take them to be with him, that no one should die, that they should be resurrected. But unfortunately, some had died. And so Paul needed to address that question identifying yes that's happened but there is a future hope and that future hope is grounded in Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 14 verses 8 to 9 Paul said if we live we live for the Lord and if we die we die for the Lord so whether we live or die we belong to the Lord for this very reason Christ died and returned to life so that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Now we need to just go to Mark chapter 12 verse 27 because it seems like Jesus said something totally different to Paul if we have a look at this passage. Jesus actually said on one occasion, God is not the God of the dead but of the living. Now that sounds like it's in tension with what Paul was saying but it's not. What Jesus was saying in that passage is that even those who have died go on living spiritually and so there is this continuity between what we have now and what is yet to come. And so when I say we need to become reacquainted with death, it's not about being morbid or cavalier or blasé or insensitive. It's actually recognising that God is God of this space where we are now and this space too where we will yet be. As I was thinking about this, I was struggling to try and find ways of uh, of expressing how this might be expressed in our community and so I thought I'd just tell you three stories of, of an experience or three stories from experience where um, as we were working in a culture where death was very much more on the doorstep um, I learned just how close God was in those spaces. We had um, at one stage when we were working overseas a house Mary, a house lady whose name was Mai uh, she was a young lady, she used to come into the house and she would do some of the odd jobs each week. It, was, uh, it sounds like a luxury and to some degree it was but it was very much expected in a way that we could invest into uh, the micro economy. And Mai was a wonderful house Mary, she would come and do some ironing or she'd do whatever um, Diana wanted uh, just around the house. But at some point through um, that period she fell ill with what we believe was some form of cancer, eminently treatable I suspect if she'd been in Australia but impossible in that context and she passed away. 
she left behind a young husband and a small child. And I remember that day that um, the, when Maya had passed away, the body was kind of sat in a, a large-ish kind of room and, and friends and family and others who'd had anything to do with Maya just came and we grieved together. They have uh, in that culture what's called a house cry. In other words, everyone comes to the house and they cry and literally they did. And it was a manner, a, a, a way of just expressing grief which was natural and, and it felt um, quite therapeutic in many respects. That night, uh, again, because there's no mortuary services, we did a funeral, I took a funeral that night for Mai and her body was taken back to her home place. One very normal Wednesday morning, I was teaching a theology class, it was a first or second year class, I can't remember, and there's a young man sitting just two rows back whose name was Royan Contuale, a young guy who uh, was very local to where we were working and so quite strategic in terms of the relationship between our college and our local people. And without warning, and we have no idea why, Royan suddenly started to have a fit in the middle of the class. He fell sideways, we managed to get him down onto the floor uh, where we tried to keep him safe. He fell into a, a kind of a... a, a comatose consciousness he could still see us he wasn't able to respond to us uh, not able to communicate we took him back to his house he was taken to the little hospital locally that afternoon and he died no warning no explanation all activity ceased uh, for three days the whole community gathered and we buried this young man who was so full of life and promise and had had said you know i just want to do the lord's work and the lord took him to be with him there's the story of rodney and linda who were part of our cell group um, they were so excited to get married and then uh, sometime later expecting their first child a little boy they called jonathan who died uh, just before he was born so the full period of gestation and I was at the hospital with Rodney and Linda Diana and I went there as soon as we'd heard and uh, Rodney was only a, a short guy, he came up to about here on my chest and I'll never forget, um, as soon as he saw me he came and, and we embraced uh, and he just put his head, his face against my shirt and he cried and he cried and I cried, his tears wet my shirt, <laughs> my tears wet his head and it was liberating in the sense that here, here I was, you know, an outsider in the culture um, at that time in charge of the whole operation. Uh, someone who normally, you know, you would expect that you'd stiff up a lip, hold it all together, and yet here we could express that grief really naturally and wonderfully. Later that day, uh, Diana and one of the other ladies uh, took Jonathan and washed his body and dressed him and we buried him that night under a great big shady tree. And I don't tell you those stories to suggest that there was anything good about what happened in any of those cases. Each of them and many others of them are really sad, in some senses uh, quite avoidable, if the medical attention had been there, if there'd been better practices. And I look back and I wish that they hadn't happened. And it's not the case either where things were done better in another culture. You know, sometimes we look at other cultures 
uh, and say, gosh, you know, they've really got it all together. That is not the case. There's some things that happened even in Rodney and Linda's situation that I look back on with regret. Uh, Linda gave birth to that little boy. Uh, the boy, he was whisked away by the family or by the, the uh, what they call Wontox, those who were there. And Linda just said, I want to see my baby. She never did. I had made arrangements um, with one of our American colleagues to clear out her refrigerator. This sounds terrible, but what options did we have so that we could pop little Jonathan's um, body in there so that when Linda came home, she could at least nurse the child. Uh, no, that was not going to happen. The pressure of culture was just too great. And as an outsider, there are times where you just can't speak into that space. And so we buried that little boy and, and Linda never got to hold her baby. And to this day, I regret not putting my foot down. And as I say, it's, you know, it's easy in hindsight to say that's what should have happened. But as an outsider, it was hard to speak into that space. But here's the thing. Here's the thing I want to emphasise in this space. The proximity of death was such that we had to understand and learn something that I think here in the West we have lost. And that is that God is Lord in those places too. That God is sovereign over everything, life and death. And when we grasp this reality, something transformational happens. And I'm speaking right now into the context of this corona pandemic where we've been confronted again by our own mortality. And some, even some in the church, are petrified by what might happen if I get sick or what could happen if it gets into our community. And our focus is taken off God and it's placed on the fears that we have. What do we learn if uh, we understand that God is sovereign over all? Well, here's just a couple of quick observations to consider. First of all, our anxiety levels decrease because we realise that we can't control everything. As I said last week, one of the burdens that we carry in our West and our educational system perpetuates this is we want to rationalise everything. We want explanations for everything. But sometimes there are not. And in the same way, we want to control everything. And if there's one thing that Corona has taught us, that is we can't control everything. Our world is not easily controlled. One of the smallest living things, a virus, has turned our world upside down. And uh, here Paul writes in Philippians 4, 4 to 6, Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. Uh, as we grasp God's sovereign control over all circumstances, as we reacquaint ourselves with his power over life and death, anxiety can be decreased. Second thing, uh, another observation is this. We actually become more empathetic to those who are walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Again, in Romans chapter 12, verse 15, Paul said, Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. That's quite confronting for us because we love to sit with those who are rejoicing. It's fun to have a party. But as soon as we find ourselves in the context of someone who is a bit sad, what do we want to do? We want to jolly them up, make them happy, get them laughing, move on, get out of this place. But the Lord often has a deep work that he wants to do in that space. 
The third thing, a third observation is this, uh, the posture of our life is reoriented. Uh, we ground our hope so often in the things that we can own or accumulate, our wealth or our health, uh, but not necessarily in what we ought to be hoping for. It's fascinating to look at the theology of, uh, of worship over the last few centuries. Um, I've done this on a couple of occasions and looked back. You know, one of the very strong emphases on some of the old hymns or in some of the old hymns is this longing for the future because life was tough. And a very strong emphasis in some of the songs that are getting around now is all about now is the time, you know, let's worship God and it's wonderful, good things. Uh, but in broad terms, the older forms of worship were often very future-oriented and uh, we tend to be more present-oriented now. No criticism of one or the other, neither is necessarily better or worse than the other. We probably need both. Uh, but in thinking about this, there is that opportunity to reorient our posture from a total focus on what's happening now to what God has in store and living well in this space in anticipation of that. We had some friends um, up in the Mallee years ago who, and I've shared this story, they lived uh, pretty rough. A uh, house that had just kind of been added to and added to and uh, I've told this story before. Their favourite verse was this from Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus said, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin don't destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So to reorient ourselves to the things of God and what God has for us. And finally, and this one is probably worth digging into a little more at another stage, when we recognise God's involvement in the process of living and in the process of dying, we have the opportunity to think differently about the palliative stage of life. Many years ago, after the service at our little church in Robinvale, I was sitting down with my friend Ray, Ray Hicks was his name, and you know how in life sometimes... Uh, you can go for weeks, months, and you look back and think, well, nothing significant happens. And yet there are other times you can remember with great detail an event that might have only lasted for a couple of minutes, but it's like I really was alive in that space. This is one of those spaces. I was sitting at a picnic table that we had outside the church. It was between two peppercorn trees that I'd recently massacred with my chainsaw, so they were looking pretty, um, pretty untidy. They did regrow. And Ray was sitting opposite and we were talking. Ray was around 85, 86 at that time. Um, he was going okay. Uh, he had every expectation there was much life ahead of him. And yet, as a man at that stage, he was also thinking about uh, the end of life and life beyond the grave. And what he said that day has never, ever left me. We were sitting there chatting and he said, You know, David, I have absolute confidence in my Saviour, uh, Jesus Christ absolute confidence in his promises i know everything that jesus has said will be true and i know that after i have died when i've left this earth i will be in his presence and i look forward to that and then there was a little pause in the conversation and then he leaned forward and he said in a much more hushed voice but i am a little bit worried about what the process of dying is going to look like you know that Christians were amongst the first to establish hospices, places where people could 
die with dignity where people would be looked after. Christians were the ones who brought dignity to end-of-life care. Christians who, in the early church during the times of the plagues, took the trouble to go and bury the bodies that had been left, abandoned on the streets. Christians who looked after those whose lives were slipping away, who were able to bring them peace, bring them comfort, look after their physical needs, attend to them, be companions and uh, bring comfort rather than considering them as a lost cause. Significant ministry in that space, significant care for people at the end of their lives. Years back as a child I remember walking through the bush, even some uh, around our district here, uh, uh, walking through the bush with my father, we'd be out checking our rabbit traps or some such thing. And the Australian bush at night is a scary, spooky place especially if you're a long way from town and if you're a little boy, let me tell you, because it's not quiet. You know, you think about the bush at night, it is not quiet. There's all sorts of sounds and you've got no idea what they are. But I knew that if I was with my father, everything would be all right because there was nothing out there scarier than him. (laughs) Now, I don't mean to say he was a scary man because he wasn't. But there was nothing out there that was going to harm me if I was with him. And in Psalm 23, David said, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. That's one of the great and enduring promises of the Scripture, that God is God in all of these spaces. And so we need fear no evil. We need to have no anxiety about what the future looks like because our Lord and God is in control. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you are sovereign, that you are the God who is sovereign over all circumstances of life. You are the God who is sovereign over death. You are the God who has ordained that beyond this life we might be in your presence when we trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. Father, we have had some anxiety in, in this past 18 months. We've been anxious about the future of the church. What's it going to look like? What will it mean for us as a congregation? Will we still have a congregation? Will we be able to do the things we've been able to do? Will we still be able to meet? There's been much anxiety in that space. And yet, Lord, one of the great lessons of history is that your church has prevailed through the ages and it's not because of anything inherently Uh, good about the church it's because of the work that you've been doing and so today Lord we declare our faith and trust in you as Lord in that space Lord there's been anxiety for us about what it might mean for us uh, this corona business with our health with life with those we love who are far from us those who are perhaps vulnerable or fragile or who have health that has been compromised lord again today we would affirm that you are lord in that space father we would confess um, this dangerous thing known as selfish individualism where our focus is so much on us and our needs and our desires and our comfort when in actual fact god we should be looking beyond ourselves to those that you call to those that you care for Lord, we often wear a mask, a sign uh, that we think of Christian discipleship, doing unto others what we want them to do to us. When you call us to do unto others what we would want them to do to us, but in a manner that expresses your love, following the footsteps of Christ. Father, we're reminded of the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, where he speaks about the body and how the body is an 
interrelated, dynamic, uh, connected uh, body and, and so, Father, when one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honoured, every part rejoices with it. And today we do rejoice because you're at work. We mourn too because there are those amongst us today who are mourning. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the one who triumphed over death. You are the one who had victory on the cross. And as Paul said there in 1 Corinthians 15, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? It's been taken away because of what Jesus has done. And we hold fast to that again today. Lord, we thank you for the experiences of life that teach us that we are weak and vulnerable and in need of a saviour. We thank you that you are the one who by the work that you've done on the cross have become that saviour. And we bow in humility before you again today and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.